0: Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in our Reclaim series, and this one is all about reclaiming reciprocity at the table. The question for you to start off with today is, if you'd never read the Bible before, what would you think Jesus was talking about based on what you've heard from other people? Enjoy. Enjoy. series where a lot of what we're trying to do this year is to reclaim some things, to pick some things back up that many of us in this room have lived in the world where we've just thrown thrown a lot of things up in the air. And we said that just doesn't work for me anymore. That idea of God or that idea of church or that idea of faith that framework that somebody has given me doesn't work. And as those things land, what we want to do is to re-pick some of that up. The challenge with that, though, is that you have to practice the things that you pick back up. They just can't be ideas. Imagine if you just had ideas about working out. Right? Imagine, yeah. Imagine that your whole life, You were a runner. Your family were a family of runners. And you got to that point where you're like, I'm just not running anymore. I don't like running. But running has been hardwired in you now at that point because that's the world that you grew up with. And then now you decide to yourself, I am going to pick up the idea of Pilates. (laughs) I'm going to think about Pilates. I'm going to look at Pilates... Establishments online, right And I'm going to talk to other people who also think about Pilates. <laughs> you would get nowhere. But we do that all the time when we do this deconstruction thing with God. We grew up in an environment where they forced us to practice some things, or I willingly did it. What was the song we were singing this morning that was like, embedded? Oh, yeah every move I think I think. yeah. <laughs> Right? Some of you heard that song, and there is a seven-year-old in VBS who just came alive in you right now, right? Every move I make, I make in you. You make me move, Jesus, right? You're like, yes. Why? You literally embodied that song somewhere as a seven-year-old with that crazy youth leader running around and then, like, doing marshmallow games or whatever. There's something about that. Well, the challenge of the Jesus story is that you need to rewire and re-embody some things in you so that now you actually experience and taste and feel what is going on here, just like working out. You need to practice these movements of this new faith or this reclaiming or redefining of what you have. If not, you'll live in what Justin is talking about. You'll stay cynical. You'll stay critical and you'll constantly challenge because you have no ownership of something. But the moment you start to own it and embody it, it becomes way more difficult now. Because you know how difficult it is to get a six pack, <laughs> right? It's, it, you got to eat differently now. You got to be in soul cycle daily. You got to be doing sit ups. And it, it's going to require something. If you. And even after a year of that, you're going to be like, I'm so soft still, right? <laughs> I I know this story. Sometimes I look in the mirror, I'm like, I work so hard. What's going on, you know? I don't wanna talk about how many IPAs I drink, that has nothing to do with it, but just, theoretically speaking. Practice is incredibly important as we deconstruct, as we reconstruct. And so I wanna reclaim this idea of reciprocity today. This idea where we need other human beings in our life to practice some things well that we need God, that we need each other, and that ourselves, that there's an equation there to practice something new, to reclaim something new, to be, once again, become embodied people uh, who are living out this Jesus narrative in Los Angeles in 2018. So we're gonna talk about some things today. We're gonna talk about soul force. We're gonna talk about kingdom. We're gonna talk about holes and not souls. That's holes with eight A- W W-H-O-L-E-S. I don't know, the other one might get weird. Uh, we're gonna talk about Thanos from uh, Infinity Wars. That was Freudian. Just deal with that. Um, we're talking about orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. We're gonna talk about four corners of the table. Then we're talking about some body issues. I grew up in this very white town uh, in South Denver. Uh, it was upper middle class. People had pretty nice lives. It looked like from the outside. I went to a larger high school of 2,700 people, and maybe 10 people in that high school were not white very homogenous, very uniformed. It's the world that I knew and it's the world that I understood. And there was also a certain type of evangelicalism there that I participated in, which was just normal. Uh, This is how I understood God and faith and how I thought that everybody else saw the world. And then I went to Azusa Pacific University and I began to deconstruct some things, right? I went in, uh, going to be a biblical studies major because I knew so much about the Bible that I was excited to share my knowledge with my professors. Uh, And they were going to be grateful about that. And then I go and I realize, oh, this thing is way bigger than I ever even understood. There's so much complexity here, and there's so many layers, and there's so many questions that have arisen. But at APU, one of the great things about it, and I think this is true of a lot of uh, educational institutions, is that at its best, education also gives you practice. At its best, education moves you just from ideas and concepts in books, and it forces you into real relationships and real practice with other human beings. And at that time at APU, I was incredibly grateful for the community of people that I had and for the ways that we were deconstructing things and for some of the conversations that we were having. Did APU do it perfectly? Of course not. Um, they were also reflective of a white colonial patriarchal system, just like one I came out from, just a little couple iterations over in the evolution process. Yet, they were open at times to certain conversations. So one of those was Force. I think it's called Force, but I can't remember. It was like the bus group that traveled around from like private, was that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I remember it's my sophomore year of college. I think I've had two sophomore year college stories the last few weeks. So I guess that's just really I'm grounding myself there in my therapy practices or something. And what had happened over the last year is that there was a lot of people who were asking a lot of different questions. And it was the first time in my life where I began to consider humanizing in a new way the gay community. I don't think I realized how oppressive I was in my thinking. I remember my freshman year getting into debates with one of my roommates about how gay people are going to hell. It's what I knew for certain, and I had the Bible verses to prove it. And then that starts to become deconstructed in my life, not because of ideas, but because of other human beings. Because you start to have actual conversations with other human beings who have a different experience than you. And I would like, like Ben Affleck, just to pretend like, no, I never did that. I was always so affirming. Oh, my gosh. Came out of the womb woke, people. Unbelievable. Yeah. Woo. Those people, am I right? No, that's not what happened. I'm on a journey still, just like many of us are on a journey, all continuing to learn to humanize and to love and to value all people. And that's a really wonderful idea to say That is much more difficult to actually live out. And so I remember over this year, uh, as a lot of those conversations were going on or, or about the gay community, uh, eventually there was this moment of practice where Soulforce came to APU and they were traveling in a bus and they were going to private Christian uh, uh, institutions and they were just showing up to have conversations, basically. And I remember I was invited as kind of a leader on campus with about 10 other people to go have <laughs> dinner with the Soulforce crew. And I was terrified. Because I was like, oh, what if I say the wrong words? What if I look like a bigot? What if I, I, I just, I didn't know how to feel or how to experience. And I was reconstructing and deconstructing all of these things and ideas. But now all of a sudden I was sitting really for the first time in my entire life across from Mexican food with somebody who identified as a gay Christian. And that was a very new term in my life. And it was terrifying for me. But I needed that moment because that moment, like many other moments of my life, embodied something that allowed me to love, care, listen, hear another human being in the same way that they could hear my story. And there was evolution and change that happened in that moment versus if I sat in a room for the next 10 years and I talked about the idea of gay people. How would that ever work out? And now I'm here in in this point in my life and I'm grateful for those moments to have evolved in such a way that I don't live into those fears anymore, but I still have other fears that I'm not doing it right, that I'm not inclusive enough or I'm not whatever. And part of this is just to be a part of the graciousness of all of us in our journey of we're all figuring this thing out together. We're all figuring out diversity and unity and inclusive, inclusivity together. And we do it not by ideas, but we do it by actual practice. So with that, uh, let's read from Luke chapter nine. When the apostles returned, Uh, Again, if you remember before, uh, Jesus had called some of the disciples. He had made them apostles. Disciples is this idea of being a student or a learner or a pupil. And that we just haven't done a good job of that in Christianity in the West. Mainly, again, it's also been a set of ideas. You learn some things about Jesus. And even how we tell people that you're a good Christian is by how. If you show up to church to hear other ideas, if you do quiet time where you hear more ideas, right? And if you pray where you hear your own ideas, is what makes people good Christians. Instead of, no, to be a good follower of this Jesus, to be a good student, you gotta go out there in some blood and some sweat and some tears, and you gotta figure this thing out, and you're gonna do it by by failing forward. That's just what it means to be human. And so even the disciples' journey here is one of them just figuring it out, and Jesus being gracious to that. Jesus taking some of these students and making some of them apostles and saying, now you're ready to be some sent ones is the word for apostle there. Now you're ready to go get in the game and to practice this in some other ways. So they go out there, they heal some sick is what the scriptures say before, right? They tell people about the kingdom of God and then they come back. So when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with them and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowns learned learned about it and followed him. By the way, I totally hate this verse. Because if I was the apostle who went out and I came back, I'm a good Enneagram 3. I want to like be on a stage with spotlights on me and say, Jesus, let me tell you about what I did out there. Right? And in the story, it's kind of moving on beyond that for a reason. It's it's almost saying to us, they went out and did some things, but their educational process hadn't ended. It wasn't a spotlight moment about all the things that the apostles had done out there when they were proclaiming the kingdom of God. It was this moment of, they went out there, they did it, and they had to get back on the saddle. They went out there, they worked hard, they, you know, did all the things they were supposed to do. They did some processing, and then they got to keep practicing. In the theological world, we call it uh, praxis theory praxis, Right, you got to practice some things, you got to have some theory, then you got to practice it again. And we see this movement and rotation all the time in the Gospel of Luke, which is, I think, incredibly helpful for us as human beings. So Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the 12s so we're still talking about these apostles, these sent ones, came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all the crowds. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each, And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. There's something really fascinating that happens in the story here, if you're paying close attention. And one of them is that we begin the narrative by talking about apostles And then all of a sudden, the apostles get to this place of like, we don't have enough to feed them. And the language changes again. Now they're disciples. And you'll see this movement in the Gospel of Luke a bunch of different times. It's going back and forth saying, remember, this is about the human journey. This isn't about people who lived 2,000 years ago and who are dead. This is about your actual encounter with the human experience and how Christ is a part of that. This is about saying there are some moments in life where you're gonna practice some things. You're gonna go be some apostles. You're gonna go figure some stuff out. And then in the very next moment, you're gonna feel like you're a student again. Be gracious to yourself in that process. Be gracious to yourself where you're at in your evolutionary journey. That's totally okay. And know that in your process, there's gonna be this constant need of reciprocity with other human beings in your life. And there's gonna be this constant need of reciprocity with God. Because at the end of the day, we are finite. At the end of the day, we are powerless, but we are not helpless. And so we can learn some things and we can grow in some things and we can trust that God is part of that practice. So let's talk about the kingdom of God really quick. A lot of what I grew up with is why I asked the question before about like, what would you think that Jesus was all about? A lot of what I thought Jesus was all about was saving souls, Right? And telling people what sinners they were. Anyone have a story similar to that, is what you would think that Jesus was all about. Right? But the Gospels, primarily, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about the kingdom of God more than they talk about any other concept. But the kingdom of God was not something that I was taught uh, in my formative years. The kingdom of God was only language that was used for this other alternate reality of heaven that is somewhere in the clouds that happens someday later. And yet the language of the kingdom of God in the gospels is this revolutionary reality of what is taking place now, right? It's a new world order that Jesus is commissioning. It is an ultimate reality that Jesus is inviting us into. It is politically rich what the scriptures are saying when it uses the language of the kingdom of God because there was already another kingdom there. There was a kingdom of Rome. There was a Caesar who ruled that kingdom, and they did not want other kingdoms. And when other people talked about other kingdoms, they killed them. And yet we have domesticated that in a million different ways. And I try to say this in here a bunch because it's something that we all have to rewire. We are Americans, who live in a time and place in history, and we are some of the most powerful people that the world has ever seen. And most of the theology of Jesus that we have been given is a theology that is rooted in power and rooted in not challenging the kingdoms of this world because we're the rulers of this kingdom. Why would we want to challenge our comfort and security? Why would we want to challenge our very great lives? We don't want to challenge that in any way, shape, or form, to be honest. So much so that I'm always fascinated with with the scriptures in in, in a lot of different ways and with society for some other ways. That in society, I'm curious how things that we would tell individuals is morally wrong. We often tell the systemic levels that it's like great and that we really value this. What I mean by this is in, in our society, we're angry at poor people when they steal or when they're violent, right? Do you hear those narratives like around gun violence? Well, I know that we, need, we can't fix gun laws because most of the gun violence happens in, right, in people of color communities, right, in poorer areas. Anyone ever heard that rhetoric Ether? right? There's a lot of blame on individuals in the poorer aspects of society. But then what we'll honor is the greatest military machine that the world's ever seen in the United States military with a $790 billion defense budget. So here we say that violence is to be glorified. But in a community where people are poor and their basic needs aren't met, when they choose to be violent, sometimes to to deal with their basic needs, we put these people in prison for life. There's a discrepancy there, right? Up here in the systems of our kingdom, we say greed is the ultimate goal. Be wealthy, get wealthier and do it at any and all costs, particularly if it protects the American name and system, right? That our capitalism, that our gospel would go around the world and that we would rule the world in such a way. But when people are greedy as individuals and they steal or take because they don't have their basic needs met. Again, we put them in prison for their entire lives. There's something odd about that story. And yet in the narratives of Jesus, whenever Jesus talks about kingdom, he challenges the realities of those systems. And so that's where you get a story of the feeding of 5,000 like this. Jesus is not talking about a theoretical idea of the kingdom of God in heaven to come. Jesus is talking about a new world order in ultimate reality now where the poorest among us, this 5,000 people who didn't have anything to eat, we know they didn't have anything to eat because the apostles are like, these people gotta go get something to eat. That Jesus says, I'm going to take care of their basic needs. Because in this kingdom, in this reality, in this new world order, we take care of those things. Because Jesus understands humanity. If we can't take care of these basic needs, human beings are going to go do things to fend for themselves and to survive. Why? Because they're human beings. But that's not how I was taught to read the story of the 5,000. I always have to read the story of 5,000 that Jesus does these miracles to prove that he was the Son of God. And yet the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are never trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And we'll see it in the story next week. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't call himself the Son of God. He calls himself the Son of Man, the human one. That Jesus is deeply interested about being human and how we go about our humanity. And Jesus knows that when you just make these ideas of heaven later, then you do wacky things. Like you want to save a bunch of souls and you want to make sure that there's never abortions. But the moment that somebody is born, they better work really hard, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and fend for themselves. And if they don't, then maybe we'll put them in prison. It's a weird narrative. I want to speak as strongly as I can about the kingdoms of this world because that's what's taking place. We create structures that honor the powerful, that honor the wealthy, and then we create structures that punish those who have had systemic issues that work against them, and then we want to criminalize it. But in Jesus's new world order, he sees hungry people in front of them, and he hands out all of the entitlements. Jesus would not be elected president. It's just true, right? Right? And so we need to rewire how we understand the kingdom of God and how we understand Jesus because this new world order is asking for us to participate in a very different way. And at times that will challenge the very things that make us comfortable in our kingdom and in our systems that we have. And so... I was thinking about this idea about when I grew up that it was always about saving souls. And yet, I don't know if I had ever thought about it before. I just started looking it up through the scriptures. Do you know how many times Jesus talks about saving souls in the Gospels? Yeah, zero times. Isn't that fascinating? Do you know how many times that Jesus is doing miracles and the miracles are never about proving that he's the son of God, but they're always about radically transforming people's lives so that they can re-enter into relationships themselves? Every time. Cause when you, feed basic people, when you feed people and you provide their basic needs, now they can go re-enter into society in basic ways. And most of the miracles that Jesus does for sinners is breaking apart the systems of this world so that people can go re-enter into the religious temple system of his day and re-enter back into the political socioeconomic system of their day by providing for their actual needs. So when we talk about this, we have to rewire it in some broader ways. I was watching Infinity Wars uh, the other night, and uh, anyone seen, anyone not seen Infinity Wars and you don't want me to spoil this? Yeah, I'm going to spoil it. So what happens is (laughs) there's this character called Thanos in Infinity Wars, and he's collecting all of the different stones. What are the stones called? Okay, it's called Infinity Wars, so that makes (laughs) sense. The Infinity Stones. And if he gets all six of the Infinity Stones, he'll be able to snap his fingers and half of the universe will eventually die because that's how he's going to balance out life and death in the universe. Spoiler alert, he snaps his fingers. Okay. Um, I love doing spoiler alerts. So if you've never been here before, it is not my fault that you are not keeping pace with culture, people. Okay. Khaleesi has a dead dragon that now the Ice King has. I don't know how to tell you this. This is just life. Okay. But what I'm interested in about the Marvel Universe is it's no longer that planet Earth is just in trouble, right? Now it's the entire universe is in trouble. That the narrative, even in our comic books, is getting bigger than it ever has been before. And what I'm always fascinated with is I love Marvel, as I love fantasy, as I love all of these things. I've said it in here before. There are no Superheroes. I watch all of these movies and you get so excited. There's these massive things going on in the world and these heroes come in to rescue the universe. But in this reality, in this actual blood and flesh kingdom, no superheroes are going to show up and to rescue us. And that's what I love about this passage is no superheroes are going to come and show up. And Jesus says, you feed them. In this kingdom, we are all going to have to do our part. There's going to be parts that God does, but what God is doing, what Jesus is doing is rewiring how we understand the kingdoms of this world so that we can break apart the systems that oppress and repress us. And so that we can enter in fully participating and begin to bring healing for ourselves and for other people. So in this story, God does God's part, Jesus does the miracle, but there's also the part of teaching the disciples of, as Jesus breaks down these kingdoms and what's our part gonna be as well in being a part of this new world order and this new reality. Because what I'm fascinated by, this is a little tangent really quick, is in all the superhero movies, you know what also always happens? Violence. The only way to save the universe is through more violence. It's the only narrative we know. The very best stories that are coming out of Hollywood, right, the very most entertaining ones is always violence that somehow is going to cure the world of violence. And what I love about the reality of this radical kingdom that Jesus had is violence is never used. You want to know how you radically change the world? You feed poor people. That movie doesn't sell. That movie is not sexy. I mean, maybe if like Wonder Woman was there and like Superman with his abs were feeding poor people, that would be great. But yeah, (laughs) they just don't sell as much. And so what we look at is, how do we think about orthopraxy versus orthodoxy? Orthopraxy is just simply, how do we do right practices? Orthodoxy is how do you do correct teaching? In the conservative world that most of us grew up in, in Western Christianity, it was, again, all about our ideas and all about orthodoxy. Do you have proper theological thinking correct? And if you have proper theological thinking correct, then A, you'll go to heaven, you know who's going to hell, and everything else will be okay in the world but that's never what Jesus talks about. Jesus is not curious about, right? Last week when Jesus sends out the apostles, does he send them out saying, make sure they say the four spiritual laws. Make sure that they articulate the sinner's prayer. They must know that they were stained lambs and now they will be washed as white as snow. Do you hear any of this language ever in Jesus? You do not. You constantly hear practical language of engagement. If they're hungry, you feed them. If they're in prison, of course, you visit them, right? Yeah, if you see people who are in the lowest parts of society, the Samaritan woman, the woman caught in adultery, right? It doesn't matter who they are, then you raise them up. You give them a new narrative about who they are as children of God as made in the divine image. This is the actual practical work that you do in the world. And seven generations from now, that will heal the world. Superhero movies will not. That we have to participate in this kingdom in a different way. There's these four corners of the table that I want to think about as we come to the communion table, as we think about this passage. This passage is found in each of the gospels for a very specific reason, because in the ancient church, uh, they, would also, they would do the bread and the wine, but they would also do bread and fish. In the earliest form of the church, we would invite people to the table as a means of talking about inclusivity and equality. Everyone would come to the table at these early Christian gatherings because it didn't matter who you were when you came to this table. You were valued. In this story, do you see anything about these people's narratives? Do you know if they're black or white or male or female or rich or poor, any of that stuff? No. In Jesus' kingdom, in that reality, who gets fed? Everybody. Did anyone have to have proper theological training in this narrative before they could get properly fed or before they could come to the communion table? They did not. There was no barriers to entry for anybody. And the early church was amazing at practicing this until we got taken over by Constantine and became a power of the empire. Now, all of a sudden we made a bunch of rules about who gets to come to the table. So these early narratives are there to say that in this new world order of Jesus, everybody comes to the table. My belief is that there are four corners to the table in our society. One of those corners of the table or one of those legs is your gender. One of those is your race, one is your sexuality, and the other is your economics. These are generally the things that we judge people by. And we line up society based on those four things. And we say, this is what it means to be at the human table. And depending on how you fulfill each of those aspects, we let you sit at certain places at the table. But in this kingdom of Jesus, in this new world order, we say everybody gets to come to the table. We honor those diverse parts of your narrative, but that doesn't either allow you or keep you from coming to it. These are beautiful aspects of your narrative, but you are always welcome. And we don't pretend that those things aren't there. In fact, we know that these are the things that hold up the table, and we want you to share your story at this table. We want you to share about what it means, right? To be an Asian American woman who lives in California, right? Or a, a black male who's straight. It doesn't matter what the thing is. Your narrative is incredibly important. You are always welcome. These are not things that prevent you. These are things that help tell the bigger story of what God is doing. And the early church knew that. And the early church welcomed everybody to the table because of that. And so... I always want to reclaim that reciprocity in this community, recognizing I need your narrative and you need my narrative. What is going to bring about healing in this world is our capacity to see the humanity and other people around us. So the practice that we have here is to say, I see your humanity and you see my humanity and each other's humanity so that when we go into the rest of the world, we can also see the humanity that is out there and to be a part of this radical kingdom that Jesus invites us into. That this is where the church began. Where the church has always gone wrong is when we take elements and symbols and creeds and the scriptures and we make people more interested in protecting those things than to what those things were pointing towards. We have a Eucharist table because somewhere somewhere someone somewhere sat at a table and they experienced Christ firsthand. We have creeds and doctrines and dogmas because someone somewhere experienced a resurrected Christ and they told their narrative and then someone else comes along a few generations later and says, oh, we got to say it as it was told to Luther or whatever, right? But that's not the point. In Catholicism, we've done it wrong because we want everyone to learn the traditions of the church and to honor the church before they care about God and their own humanity. In Protestantism, we've done it wrong because we want people to know more about the Bible than they know about their own lives, that's just weird. Those things should point to God, not prevent you from seeing God. Those things are just right, markers on the road to say, that's where the story is at. That's what we can go towards. But you have to experience that on your own. And so what we're going to do later, we're not going to do it now, we're going to get back into some conversations, is that today when we do Eucharist, we're going to hand out some uh, uh, parts of the body to each of us as a reminder that we are the body of Christ. We are this new world order. We are the ones who will bring out a greater ultimate reality. And we're going to do that by listening well and honestly to each other's narratives. Which is why we practice that in here. And you're going to take apart that body and you're just going to hand it to someone else. That piece might get passed a few times. You're going to get sick. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) But I want to make sure that every person in here has handed a piece of that body to someone else and that you have one yourself as a reminder that we share in this body together. We beautifully represent the table of God. And if we can beautifully and practically live into this table, then what could that actually mean for the rest of the world? We're going to finish with this question. Before we get there, who can you practically invite to your table as you leave this place? Real simple question. Enjoy.